Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. What Iraq was, was an over-reliance on the imagination. After 9-11, which the policymakers of the White House at least didn't see coming, uh, they let their imaginations run wild. And so while it was true that there were were gross intelligence failures, particularly as pertains to Saddam's supposed um, uh, weapons program, it was at least as true that in the end, President Bush didn't rely on this or that bit of intelligence. There is a caricature out there of Bush as this intellectually lazy cowboy. But Bush, in fact, could be a very, very intellectually rigorous guy. The problem, though, was that the president did cut corners intellectually. He did um, uh, tend to see things in black and white terms. In the months up to 9-11, he was not as engaged, nor were his people around him, with the clear and present threat that al-Qaeda constituted. And I think that that was, um, that was a failure of his, just as it was a failure some 18 months later, when he really came to believe all these Iraqi exiles who told him what he wanted to hear, which is that they're going to, you know, when, when the U.S. troops come into Iraq, man, they're going to be throwing flowers and candy at the feet of those soldiers. They cannot wait to coalesce around democracy. You know, the agencies, as you know, has long admitted that we got Iraq WMD wrong. But the idea that kind of the agency knew the truth and shaded it to some degree in its narrative is something I have not seen before. I'm not suggesting that, say, George Tennant, for example, knew that there was real reason to doubt all of the intelligence and like looked at that in the face and said, I don't care, go bury it in the sand somewhere. Where I do think that, that um, the agency lost its integrity was helping to sell the case for war. And I think in the effort to make this case, there are moments detailed in the lead up to Powell's speech where Tenet himself is not made to know that there are serious doubters about, for example, curveball, that, that the emphasis on trying to sell this case, I think, does amount to a loss of integrity. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Robert Draper is a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic, as well as a correspondent for GQ. He is the author of several books, including the just-released To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. Robert and I just sat down to talk about his new book. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Robert, welcome to Intelligence Matters, and congratulations on your new book, To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me on, Michael. I really appreciate it. So, Robert, I need to make a disclaimer to my listeners about this interview. And that's to say that I'm not completely objective here for a couple of reasons. One is I want people to know that you interview me for the book. I think that's important for my listeners to know. Absolutely. And then, and then two, you interviewed me because I lived through at least a part of this story in four different roles at CIA. So I have my own memories here and people people need to know that as well. So this is this is an unusual interview for me and may well be an unusual interview for you too. You may not have another one quite like this. So I just wanted to let everyone know that so that everybody everybody knows what's what here. So Robert, let me let me start by by asking you why you decided to take this on. You know, there's scores of official investigations, books, articles. Why another one? Sure. I, you know, I, as you likely know, Michael, had spent a great deal of time inside the Bush White House for a book that uh, Simon & Schuster published of mine in 2007 called Dead Certain um, Inside the Presidency of George W. Bush. And um, I, I spent a great deal of time with the president, but for all of my access, really was not able to crack the nut of the central mystery uh, that would define his presidency, define his legacy, which was, of course, um, why after 18 months after 9-11, did he go to war with a country that had nothing whatsoever to do with 9-11? And um, a lot of, of books have been written about um, post-war Iraq, about uh, um, uh, about um, a lot of inside base- baseball that preceded uh, the um, the invasion itself. But I don't really think any of them uh, solve that mystery either. And so that was the main reason why I undertook it. The secondary one was, I think that that it's clear now that Iraq has its own legacy, that fateful decision to go into Iraq, that uh, I think President Trump would not be President Trump, but for uh, the endless wars uh, and, mm. um, uh, and and the other things that now are essential bits of Trump rhetoric. Uh, and uh, I think as well that a whole generation now has grown up believing that the U.S. government's not on the level. And I think that's largely because of Iraq as well. So it is the most consequential foreign policy decision of the last um, half century. And I felt that with the passage of time now um, would be a time uh, to re-explore it. So, Robert, in terms of researching the book, can you walk us through that process? What was the story of how you did this from you know, the time you started your research to the time you came to the conclusions of the story you wanted to tell? 
Uh, sure. And, and in fact, it's interesting to answer this question to you, Michael, because while I ended up interviewing over 300 people for this book, I think you were like the seventh or eighth person that I spoke with. Um, and so I was, you know, a, a fountain of ignorance uh, at the point in which I first came to you, um, much less so uh, later on, where for my book on the Bush presidency, I spent so much time in, inside the West Wing, um, but had not interviewed one person in the intelligence community for that book. This book kind of reverses that. I would say probably 25% of the people that I spoke with were from the intelligence community. Numerous people um, from the State Department as well, from the Pentagon. Uh, there were a lot of principals, you know, familiar names that, that I interviewed for this. Uh, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice, uh, uh, CIA Director George Tenet, and others. But frankly, I think the, the most important information came from people who were in the trenches, who occupied the mid to mid upper tiers, who saw the decisions being made, who contributed to those decisions, but do not have themselves legacies to protect or to burnish. And so I found them to be the most honest um, sort of in, interpreters of what took place. Were there people that you wanted to interview who you couldn't get to? Besides President Bush? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really would have liked to have interviewed Vice President Cheney. I, I came to believe that um, that I got as much out of um, the office of the vice president as one could hope to get. But I would have loved to hear Cheney's perspective. And uh, it was a close call. And ultimately, he decided not to cooperate. You mentioned Bush. I, of course, would have yeah. liked to have talked to him. But I, but um, Bush was not pleased with um, uh, with my first book, though I thought it was more than fair to him. Uh, and uh, and I ultimately decided that, that um, you know, sometimes we're, we're not always the reliable, the most reliable narrators of our own lives, and that the president was still, from what we could see leaking out, um, still a bit defensive about this legacy-defining moment of his. And so I made my peace with the fact that, that uh, I wouldn't be speaking with him for this venture. So, Robert, one more one more question on on process, and you've already you've already sort of hinted at it. The first, that this is Washington, right? The people involved in this are still alive, and they want to look good in a book sure. like this, right? Yeah, they want yeah. to look like the hero. They want to look, they want to come across as the, as if they only listen to me person. So as a journalist, how do you, how do you sort through that and find the truth? Yeah. I mean, of course, in, in answering this question, Michael, we come upon the realization that your former profession and my current one are very much alike in this regard, uh, that you always have to consider the source. And by considering the source, it's not as simple as are they always truthful or are they always lying? Um, but what are their motives? Um, what is their perspective? Were they in a position to see the truth that clearly? Is it possible that, that they have come to believe a truth um, and sincerely believe it when, in fact, that's not what the truth is? You have to weigh all of this stuff. And, and as a younger journalist, I think I was much more prone to going with the jazzy quote that somebody gave because it was too good to fact check. I've you know, learned over the years that um, that's not what you can or should do. And 30 years into this business, I think I've done a pretty good job of being able to ferret out the facts. It's a real human endeavor for sure. And oftentimes you have to go not only back to the original source, but continually consider the source and recognize that, say, a Michael Morrell might really be the perfect guy to talk to about matters ABC, but on matters DEF, less so. And that's not just because Michael Morrell wasn't privy to those, but that Michael Morrell may have his own interest, uh, his own jaundiced perspective or whatever. So it's a, mm -hmm. it's a methodology that is a distinctly human endeavor and you simply do the best you can. So Robert, the substance of the book itself, mm -hmm. what's the, what's the theme? Where did you come out in terms of what happened 
and why. Can you walk us through kind of the the big picture arc of the story? Sure. I think, you know, Michael, the, the, the big looming question is why did Bush do it? And as you know, it's widely believed by certain people that Bush came into office wanting to go to war with Saddam. Uh, I don't believe that's so. I think he hated Saddam truly for having tried to kill his father. He said to you, after all, when you were briefing him, that um, it's not a question of, of if but when, that someday um, Saddam's going to have to be taken out. But I don't really think that, that Bush wanted to spend his presidency hugging war widows and and, um, overtaking a domestic agenda with a wartime one. I also don't think there's any evidence that Bush went into this for oil or because Cheney talked him into it or because it was to favor Israel. I do believe this decision was his and his alone, but, but the interesting paradox is that I think he made this decision because he felt like he had no choice in the matter. And he felt he had no choice in the matter, um, first, because the only apparatus that was prepared for him was a wartime apparatus prepared by his closest subordinates who believed that Bush had already made up his mind when, in fact, he had not. Over and over, publicly as well as privately, the president said, my mind isn't made up on this. And yet so persuaded were people like Condoleezza Rice, CIA Director George Tenet, and others that Bush had made up his mind that they already started building a war machine, as it were, an interagency process that would discuss what uh, what disasters to avoid for post-war Iraq, a, an elaborate military invasion plan spearheaded by CENTCOM com- com- uh, Commander Tommy Franks, George Tenet uh, and the CIA essentially helping to s- make a case for war, a public case for war, when in fact there was a choice in the matter and there were doubters, uh, but those doubters' voices weren't heard or they were left at the margins. And, um, and, and so I think that's one big chunk of it. Another way to think about why we went into Iraq was, of course, the context of 9-11, which you have heard ad nauseum, you know, we all have was a failure of the imagination. Let's put, I happen to think that's an oversimplification, but even leaving that aside, what Iraq was, was an over-reliance on the imagination. After 9-11, which the policymakers of the White House, at least, didn't see coming, uh, they let their imaginations run wild. And so while it was true that there were were gross intelligence failures, particularly as pertains to Saddam's supposed um, uh, weapons program, it was at least as true that in the end, President Bush didn't rely on this or that bit of intelligence. You would see in his speeches him saying things like Saddam would love nothing better than to turn over his weapons to evildoers like Al-Qaeda who seek to destroy us and our freedoms. Literally every bit of that sentence is um, factually inaccurate, but uh, but that was the kind of flight of fancy that overtook uh, the Bush White House in a very understandable uh, post 9-11 climate of high anxiety and paranoia. But a failure to follow the facts, even as threadbare as the facts were, was at least as responsible um, for the disastrous uh, decisions leading up to going into Iraq as the actual flaws in the intelligence were. Some folks, right? Some folks you said, like like Condi and George, saw the writing on the wall or thought thought they saw the writing on the wall, right? Yeah. But were there other people like the vice president's office, like the Department of Defense at the deputy level and the undersecretary level who were trying to take the president in a certain direction? 
Absolutely. Yes. I mean, before 9-11, the Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, had been obsessed, and I think with the best of intentions, um, by the belief that, that Saddam was a menace to his people, a menace to the Middle East, and stood in the way of the democratization of that region, and thus um, um, should, be, should be taken out. Wolfowitz had tried to get the administration's attention on this all the way up to 9-11 and really had very few takers. But as my book discloses, on the very evening, the late, late evening of 9-11, um, Wolfowitz sent out a tasking to the Defense Intelligence Agency, not related to the 9-11 hijackers, but instead, hey, go find out what Iraq's involvement in the past has been with terrorism. He had Iraq on his mind, and he very much forced it onto the agenda. He didn't force Bush to go to war, but he forced a, what seemed to be a changing of the subject to be conflated with the actual subject at hand. Uh, Wolfowitz, I think, is the principal actor of that, though Dick Cheney, as you mentioned, the vice president, and for that matter, his chief of staff, Scooter Libby, were very much in lockstep with Wolfowitz on this. So maybe what would be fun here, and I hadn't planned to do this, but let me go through a kind of a list of names yeah. of the key players and just get you to react to them. Sure. So, so you just did Wolfowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, Doug Fife, who was then the number three at the Department of Defense. Yeah, he was the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. Um, I think it's fair to say not a widely liked figure within the administration. He did um, have an interesting um, relationship with with uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. At times, it seemed like an abusive relationship, but at times, um, uh, Rumsfeld very much listened to and depended on Fife. Fife was what I don't use the term because I in my book because I find it to be kind of intellectually lazy, but what you would call a neoconservative in that um, he really believed in uh, in military force for the good of of um, regions beyond America and of course America itself, and was very much pushing this this notion that Saddam. Um, was hooked up with al-Qaeda. Now, today, Doug says that's not so, that, that uh, the idea was that Saddam himself was a state sponsor of terrorism, and it really didn't matter if he, if he was um, operationally linked up with al-Qaeda or not. But that, in fact, is not what the, his, what the history shows. And, and right. Fife very right. much pushed that link, and, and, uh, and I think to almost comical ends if the results weren't as tragic as they were. Uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld. Yeah, Rumsfeld, um, uh, a kind of a maddening figure because clearly a brilliant man. And 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 by the way, Michael, it bears you know reminding your listeners that whether or not they anybody at the time or later agreed with the ideologies um, uh, present in the Bush administration, this was as experienced a national security team as any presidency had amassed since maybe JFK. And Rumsfeld, having already been Secretary of Defense, not to mention Chief of Staff of the White House, was very much as, as about as experienced as they come. Nonetheless, he'd been out of government for a very long time, and it showed. He had no experience thinking about terrorism, and that showed as well. He had a native skepticism of anybody's intelligence that was different from his. He believed himself to be intellectually superior to almost everyone, and that certainly included the intelligence analysts at the CIA. But he didn't have answers himself. He only answered questions with questions. And he kind of played a game of rope-a-dope with everybody else, and certainly with the president. I mean, Rumsfeld was not 
an Iraq hawk, as far as I can tell. Um, he was not promoting the idea of going to war with Iraq, but he was promoting the idea of thinking about it. And he was promoting the idea of shouting down anybody who wouldn't think about it. So in this sort of maddening way, he he kind of is a, a key player in the kabuki theater that ultimately led, I think, the president to go to war. He's a, he's a, I, I was struck when reading your book, he, he's an odd character. Right. He's um, sitting on the fence with his finger in the air almost. Yeah. Uh, Maybe that's not a completely fair description, but he is an odd character in that he doesn't take a position. He doesn't take a position um, in part because he, you know, he wants to preserve. He, if he takes his position, then he's on a side. He wants. He believed in a way that um, that not to take a position early on whether or not to invade Iraq would assist his ability to guide the president's thinking as a supposed, you know, neutral character. But the other reason he wouldn't take his position is that he didn't have a position. I mean, it's um, and and this was, you know, really I've, I've used the word continually now, maddening characteristic of of Rumsfeld that he was great at criticizing other people, but then when he was asked, well, what do you have? Often had nothing to offer. There's a, to me, one of the really critical moments in the book is a moment that took place in September of 2002 when Rumsfeld, and this is classic Donald Rumsfeld, uh, very, very skeptical of the intelligence, you know, and about what what the WMD intelligence says. And so he commissions his own um, study, basically. Okay, go take a look and and find out what it is we really know versus what we think we know. And um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff comes back with this assessment that, you know, actually, we don't know hardly anything about Saddam's um, uh, supposed WMD program. We're just kind of guessing at this. And Rumsfeld says, wow, this is incredible, and sends a note to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. This is really, really big. Does he send it to the President of the United States? No, he does not. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Robert Draper. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So Scooter Libby, Robert, talk to us about Scooter, who was uh, Vice President Cheney's National Security Advisor and Chief of Staff. Right, which, by the way, is an unusual dual-hatted role to be playing. Um, Libby was the backseat to um, what Cheney was, the backseat. I mean, he uh, uh, he was always a bit furtive, uh, an extremely intelligent man, uh, very well-liked, had had charming fellow, had lots of relations um, in the journalistic community, for example, really a player, but also knew never to get out in front of himself. Uh, but he was to Dick Cheney, what Cheney was um, to, to Bush, the indispensable advisor, and on all of the issues that mattered. And, and of course, once 9-11 occurred, then Libby's portfolio grew by leaps and bounds. He confederated, I think, um, uh, with Paul Wolfowitz more than almost anyone to push the case, a fallacious case, I think the evidence shows, 
that Saddam and, and Al Qaeda were hooked up with each other, and in particular, that um, in the months before the 9/11 attacks, that one of the 9/11 hijackers, Mohammed Atta, went to Prague to meet with an, an Iraqi intelligence agent. Libby and Wolfowitz hammered this over and over, and the poor analysts of the CIA were continually facing the same question, these same tasks, um, and. Libby, bring, being the brilliant lawyer that he was, would always find whenever there was an inconsistency. It, it became a, a, a gruesome exercise, and it's unclear exactly um, what point it all served. Yeah. The vice president himself. Cheney, I think, was in a lot of ways one of the most intellectually honest people in the administration. He uh, he had supported as Secretary of Defense during the first Bush administration, um, uh, routing Saddam out of Kuwait, but then not moving our troops into Baghdad. He believed at the time that that was the right thing to do. He began to you know question himself by around the time that he became George W.'s running mate. But he also recognized that he was the vice president, that Bush wanted a domestic agenda of education reform, tax cuts, et cetera. And, and so he, he really left that agenda to the side, but he nonetheless believed what he believed. And then when 9-11 occurred, it, it also occurred to the vice president that we had failed time after time um, to project force in the world. Uh, we were never good on our threats, and people were beginning to call us on this, whether it was the, the terrorist bombings in the embassies in Africa or 9-11 or Mogadishu. And uh, and so uh, Cheney made very, very clear that, that uh, uh, very early on that he believed that we should go after Saddam, that only military force would do. Uh, now, where he was intellectually less than honest was, I think, in promoting intelligence or hyperbolizing intelligence uh, that did not say what he claimed it said. We, you won't forget, of course, his famous speech to the Veterans of Foreign War in Nashville in August of 2002, in which he says, simply stated, there can be no doubt that Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. There was plenty of doubt. There was no proof that he did have it, but Cheney wasn't having any of that. He thought that those were small details. And I think that Cheney truly in his bones believed that Saddam had weapons of some sort. Did we discover them once we got in? And so who cared whether what bit of intel linked to what particular weapon? We would go there, we would find the weapons, and that would be all that mattered. Uh, George Tennant, who was director of Central Intelligence. My boss. Yeah, yeah. In many ways, I find Director Tennant to be one of the most sympathetic characters in all of this. He was a Clinton holdover, after all. Um, He almost didn't get the job. Donald Rumsfeld was going to be CIA director, but then when Bush's first pick for uh, Secretary of Defense didn't work out, Rumsfeld slid over to that position. Tennant kept his job. Then 9-11 happened, and of course the CIA was the very easy target, the easy scapegoat for this. Uh, but but Tennant had developed a, a great rapport with Bush, who, as you'll recall, was the son of um, a CIA director himself. And it's also the case that before Bush took office, the, the 90s, the Clinton years, had been kind of fallow years for the agency. Um, Clinton wasn't all that attentive um, to the agency, all that interested in intelligence briefings. And access to the president um, meant a lot to tenant, not personally, but for the institution, for what he called the building. Uh, but that was a dangerous game to play when you get really close to the policymaker. One CI analyst said to me, that's that's the sort of tightrope walk to get in bed with the policymaker without losing your virtue. And I think the evidence becomes clear that eventually Director Tennant uh, had difficulty um, sort of drawing that red, uh, red line in the sand between access and compromising um, his institution and perhaps crossed over that line. 
Condoleezza Rice, who was the national security advisor and whose job was to run a process, right, to bring information and options and the upsides and downsides of those options to the president. A job that, as you've described, it sounds pretty straightforward, but in this particular case, proved nearly impossible for Condoleezza Rice, and not because of her many, many um, capabilities, perhaps the one certifiable genius in the Bush administration, um, uh, but also the least experienced of Bush's uh, war council uh, and the youngest of them, and they often let her know that. In particular, Donald Rumsfeld uh, held her up with disdain, and she decided, you know, she never lost her cool, but she also wanted to keep all the interagency squabbles, of which there were many, particularly between Colin Powell and, and Rumsfeld, um, away from the president. She didn't want him to see any of that mess. And in fact, she wanted to find a way to present a consensus opinion from his national security principles um, to the president. And that just was impossible. I mean, the, the, these guys didn't think alike. And so it would be like, you know, making the world's worst smoothie and putting all of these disparate opinions in into a blender. Uh, and uh, and so I, the one thing that she had that those others did not have was access to the boss. She and the president had an extraordinary bond, uh, so much so that it would cause people in the West Wing to whisper, you know, uh, uh, about it. And, um, uh, and, I, and I do think that it was important for um, later Secretary of State Rice to, to preserve that access. But unfortunately, there were moments where she could have tested that access by telling him some uncomfortable truths, like, for example, when in, I think, December of 2002, uh, she came to realize that the WMD intelligence was wafer thin and had said to intelligence analysts, you are putting the president way out on a ledge, but herself did not go and warn the president, listen, we are going to war on a pretext of WMD, and we do not have the intelligence to back it up. You've talked about George Bush already. I'm wondering if there's anything you want to add. Only that I'm um, something that you know quite well and, and something that I think you and I discussed, which is that there is a caricature out there of Bush as this intellectually lazy cowboy. And it's a caricature that Bush in his own way has promulgated over the years. It's kind of served him well to be, as he puts it, misunderestimated. But Bush, in fact, could be a very, very intellectually rigorous guy. Um, uh, and, and I think that, that for all of his kind of peevishness when people would tell him things that uh, he didn't want to hear, he would invariably reward people for doing so. The problem, though, was that the president did cut corners intellectually. He did um, uh, tend to see things in black and white terms. Uh, when pressed uh, to do otherwise, I think that, that uh, he would rise to the occasion, but he had to be pressed. And um, as you, his former briefer, knew better than just about anyone, in the months up to 9-11, he was not as engaged, nor were his people around him, with the clear and present threat that al-Qaeda constituted. This was kind of a, you know, it was sort of a Clinton thing, this, this um, notion of al-Qaeda terror. And, and these cold warriors that Bush surrounded himself with just didn't think in those terms. And, and, uh, and I think that that was, um, that was a failure of his, just as it was a failure some 18 months later when he really came to believe all these Iraqi exiles who told him what he wanted to hear, which is that they're going to, you know, when, when the U.S. troops come into Iraq, man, they're going to be throwing flowers and candy at the feet of those soldiers. They cannot wait to coalesce around democracy. Uh, the president always believed that that's what Americans want, freedom more than anything else. Um, 
people do want that, but they want a lot of other things too, including security. And it was a failure, I think, of his intellect and his energy um, to grasp at those untidy truths. So Robert, I want to ask you about a couple things in the book that either I did not know that came as news to me or that did not resonate with me. And the first is, is your conclusion that there were analysts in the IC, including at CIA, who had views that were at odds with what was in the October 2002 National Intelligence Estimate. That came as a surprise to me. I did not know that now, and I did not know that back then. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Yeah, there were. So, I mean, we're relating, we're we're talking now about um, two or three different things relating to biological weapons, chemical weapons, and nuclear capability on the part of the Iraqi regime. And um, you are aware that that, um, there, or I think you may be aware that there were in fact analysts who strongly disagreed um, with the notion that these aluminum tubes that had been seized, um, that had been purchased by the Iraqis, uh, were likely going to be used for ro- uh, rocket launchers and were not really suitable for uh, for a, a nuclear centrifuge. Uh, those people included um, analysts inside the agency's counterproliferation division. And you're correct, uh, Michael, that has not been reported before. And that was something I learned rather later. Too, but the the senior managers at CPD basically didn't want that out. The reason they didn't want that out was they thought war was inevitable anyway, and they felt that uh, basically stating. Uh, um, we don't agree with all of this, put them on the bad side bureaucratically of what would have been a losing argument as it, as it was. That was on the nuclear side. On the biological, uh, on the biological side, as you're aware, there were individuals who disagreed that um, or, or were leery of the um, source known as Curveball, uh, who was a German source who the agency themselves had never interviewed, but but many of whom had been briefed on, and some of whom, who I interviewed at the time, had expressed skepticism. And uh, But the DIA in particular was very, very enamored of this German source. Those analysts, um, they were they were not the voices that were primarily heard, and, and there were, were a couple of biological analysts in particular who um, who were very wedded to the curveball intel, and those were the voices that carried the day. Chemical weapons is a little bit more complicated, but the basic view of, among a couple of people, uh, a couple of the senior analysts on, on chemical weapons was that Saddam probably had some, but they weren't so sure that some of the evidence was, quote, signature evidence. These trucks that were moving in and out of these suspected chemical factories um, could just as easily have been water trucks as supposed decontaminated contamination trucks. It was really, really unclear whether um, any of these constituted signs that Saddam was ramping up his supply in the year of, that the National Intelligence Estimate was produced in 2002. Um, but sort of on orders of um, one of the senior managers of the NIE, a kind of elaborately high estimate of um, the CW output was made. So these are these seem small, but they're really not. It wasn't. You're you're right, Michael. That I don't think there were a whole lot of people running around in the intelligence community saying Saddam's got nothing. Um, everybody figured by his behavior that he probably had something, but what they did not figure was a that it, that the evidence was conclusive. B um, that um, the that the program was necessarily active in a way that was really alarming, and C 
most importantly, and John McLaughlin, the deputy director of the CIA, testified to this on the Hill, that it meant that Saddam would use them against the United States. Those are pretty important things. So this is kind of an important distinction. So you're not saying that there were analysts who, you know, in in deep inside CIA, who didn't believe he had chemical weapons or didn't believe he had a biological weapons capability or who, who didn't believe he was reconstituting his nuclear weapons. It was more the pieces of the arguments and the kind of level of confidence is what you're talking about. That's right. Sounds yeah. like. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I'll say that like now weapons inspectors who had spent all this time on the ground, those people, um, a number of them did not believe that Saddam had weapons. Some did, but many did not. And, and uh, uh, that they were never listened to despite the fact that they were the guys interviewing people on the ground um, is, you know, a lamentable fact, but you're right. that I mean, you as an analyst know that um, the, you know, that many of the analysts, both who helped write the NIE and helped, you know, just provide um, intelligence analysis, supported that and other documents, um, were very, very uncomfortable with the thinness of the evidence, with with how old the evidence was, with how inconclusive it was. And so the very notion of going to war on this um, was quite alarming to them. And that was particularly the case by February 5th, 2003, when Secretary of State Colin Powell gave his big speech to the UN, basically saying, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear not rumors, not, you know, um, intimations. These are hard, cold facts. And the people who supplied uh, that intelligence analysis did not view these as hard, cold facts. Yeah. Um, the second, the second thing that jumped out at me was your view that the agency lost its integrity here. You know, you mentioned it earlier when you said George stepped over the line. Yeah. Um, you know, the agencies, as you know, has long admitted that we got Iraq WMD wrong, but the idea that kind of the agency knew the truth and shaded it to some degree in its narrative is something I have not seen before. Can you talk about that? Sure. And it's, and, and to be clear, Michael, and these distinctions really do have meaning, do have a difference. Um, I'm not suggesting that, say, George Tennant, for example, knew that there was real reason to doubt all of the intelligence um, uh, and like looked at that in the face and said, I don't care. Go bury it in the sand somewhere. It was more that Tennant, A, believed that war was inevitable anyway, had said so by the summer of 2002 to a number of people. Um, B, was very concerned that uh, the agency would be shut out. Um, as the run-up to war accelerated and that the Bush White House would come to depend on much more unsavory sourcing than what the agency supplied. Um, And C, did basically believe that, look, there's going to be, kind of like Cheney did, there will be an invasion, weapons of mass destruction will be found somewhere, and no one's going to like do the spreadsheet of, oh, did this come from Curveball or whatever else? Where I do think that the, um, the agency lost its integrity was helping to sell the case for war. And, uh, and I do describe in, I think, pretty unsparing detail how in a period from roughly November 2002 to the time that, that Powell gave his speech in February 2003, um, there was ample reason to believe that, um, that there ought to be caveats that there ought to be mentioned that we really don't know this stuff very well. But but um, when when Deputy Director John McLaughlin on December the 21st, 2002, gave his presentation um, to President Bush and others in what came to be known as the infamous slam dunk presentation, uh, 
basically he was chided by this. Nice try, the president said. It's not good enough. And the president was not saying, as Bob Woodward's book, um, Plan of Attack, I think led a lot of people to believe whether Bob intended this or not. It, president Bush was not saying, hey, wow, maybe Saddam doesn't have WMD after all, because I'm not very convinced by what you're saying. No, no. The president absolutely believed that Saddam had it. He did not believe, however, that the agency was making an effective case. And he was going to turn that case making over to somebody else. Uh, Director Tennant um, wanted to show him that he could make a better case, even though really McLaughlin had at that point said to his own analysts, wow, is this all we've got? He knew how thin things were. But then they pressed the analysts after, after George said, no, no, it's a slam dunk, Mr. President. We can get you a better marketing case for sure. They press their analysts to, to find suggestions that, that absolutely um, Iraq had WMD. And I think in the effort to make this case, and and there are moments, you know, detailed in the lead up to Powell's speech uh, where Tennant himself is not made to know that there are serious doubters about, for example, curveball, that, that the emphasis on trying to sell this case, I think, does amount to a loss of integrity. Yeah, boy, that's a that's that's a charge. So I, I didn't see that. I got to be honest with you. I did not see that. You know, you talk in the book, for example, about who were the analysts who were in the room with Paul. And mm-hmm. I think you mentioned that George George brought in the the people who would say the right things and kept out the naysayers. And, you know, George had no role, for example, in in who who was in the room and who wasn't. So we can probably talk about this more. But um, I just have two two questions for you, Robert. Two more questions. One is, when do you think President Bush made the decision to go to war? Yeah, it's a great question. And and, uh, and no one can nail the date because the president himself in his own memoir won't state the date. I mean, he he claims, and I think not dishonestly, that all the way up until the end, he was hoping to avoid war. But I think that by January, roughly in the window of, say, January 3rd or 4th to 15th, um, he's telling all of his principals, I think I've got to do this. And, uh, and, And as far as I can tell, it's not because he has just seen some damning bit of intelligence, but he's getting tired of waiting for the weapons inspectors to come up with something and they haven't come up with anything. He's convinced there's weapons out there. Hans Blix hasn't found anything. He thinks Blix is conflicted and maybe incompetent. Um, he's worried that um, if he drags this out for too long, that summer will be upon the troops. And uh, and he just and he's an impatient guy. I mean, it's, uh, the president had been, by and large, very patient in all of this, but it's not his nature. I mean, you know this from attending meetings. He tends to, you know, he wants people to get to the point early. He likes to end meetings early. And and it was driving him nuts, all of this waiting. Around that window then was, I think, the time that, that uh, he decided to do it, but still felt like he needed to make the public case so that before he sent men and women off to war, um, their loved ones would understand it was for a worthy cause, hence the Powell speech. Uh, Robert, last question. Mm-hmm. Are there any heroes in this book? Yeah, I mean that's a it's something I've struggled with, and I and I do think that there are some. I think that the weapons inspectors are absolutely heroic. The problem is, is they're, they're I mean they basically by around the time of Colin Powell's speech, it is it's it's all too clear that um, that they have not found anything, that they have learned an alternative narrative from Iraqi scientists, and and uh, and that nobody wants to hear it. You know, so um, so I think that, that they are heroic and they're shut out. I think that, that Powell himself um, is as close to a hero as we have among the principals, uh, because after all, um, he is the one person who on August the 5th, 2002, in his dinner at the residence with President Bush had said, if you break it, 
you own it. You know, he was the one person who warned the President Bush of all these unintended consequences. Now, having said that about Powell, um, he also had an opportunity when Bush asked, what should I do to him um, to say, don't do it, don't go to war. Right. And, and right. when in January of 20, 2003, he said, Colin, are you with me? I think I've got to do this. Are you with me? He could have said, nope, I'm not with you. But he was. All right. All right. The book is To Start a War, How the Bush Administration Took America into Iraq. The author is Robert Draper. Robert, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Michael. That was Robert Draper. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis. Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.